Hello and welcome to episode eight of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth startups. So Hector, this week we've got Eamon Carey on. What are you excited to hear from him about? I am excited about very many things, but I think it's going to be interesting hear, hearing about Eamon's journey, partly because he started off as a journo, which is something that we've seen a fair bit in VC. And I'm yeah, curious to understand what it is in terms of shared characteristics between people who are journos and who become um, VCs and what are the things that make a person good at both. I'm also um, really excited to hear about Eamon's thoughts on accelerators more generally. The Seed Stages tagline is Demo Day without the accelerator. Thesis being Demo Days are the most valuable part of an accelerator and you don't need the program in the run up to it. So I'm sure that Eamon has tons of thoughts around it and may also share the sort of excitement around the democratization of early stage and how we as accelerators and programs initiatives like the seed stage can make it easier for founders to find funding from the the perfect investor. 100%. Well, let's bring him in. Welcome to Riding Unicorns, Eamon. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We always like to start by getting people's kind of career to date and how you ended up at Techstars. For sure. So I started out as a journalist, actually. I, I studied journalism at college because it had the fewest number of hours of any of the courses that I looked at. And I was trying to be a rock star back then and playing in a band and all that kind of stuff. So I studied journalism, ended up working for a couple of radio stations and, and newspapers and, and others, but had always been interested in tech, right? So I'd, I'd learned how to code when I was pretty young, had had Ataris and Amigas and PCs as I grew up. And so started noticing opportunities, particularly around the intersection of content and, and technology. And in particular, took a trip out to Korea in 2004 and saw how people were using their mobile phones there and, and consuming content. And like, even back then, I remember walking through a mall and seeing a bunch of people sitting around watching someone play, like watching TV and on the TV was someone playing StarCraft. Right, going like this was a mind-blowing experience. Like I somehow wandered into the future. And so I came back from that going, mobile phones are going to be like bigger than anything. And the people who can figure out the right type of content to deliver on them stand to do pretty well. And so I quit my job and started my first company basically building stuff for for mobile content, apps, websites, kind of you you name it. We did it. We just used to a joke with people now that like we just used to say yes a lot. Like, can you do this? Yes. And then we would go and find a freelancer to do it for us, but built that business in, in Ireland and the UK and, and did some work out in the Middle East and, and Asia um, and exited that and, and, and then had a Facebook games company with some friends that, that we were also lucky enough to, to exit. And from there, kind of I had an education company that I ran directly into a brick wall, which was a great learning experience, painful, but was, was starting to get emails from, from other founders going, hey, we're doing our first B2B sales or we're thinking about expanding into our first international market. Can you help? And so started taking more meetings with other founders and eventually met actually another founder from Ireland who's running a company called TasteBuds that was going through the Springboard program in Cambridge. I think this was 2011 or, or 12. And through them got to know John Bradford, who was the person who brought Techstars to London. So joined initially as a mentor on the London program and, and loved the experience of kind of helping companies. And then invested in one or two companies, became an entrepreneur in residence because I was trying to figure out that I want to start another company. And I think basically I hung around long enough that eventually they they offered me a, a gig at Techstars. So 
almost exactly five years ago, five years ago this week, I started formally running one of our programs out in New York and, and have been with Techstars ever since, uh, moving back to London to run the program here in, in 2018. So it's been a um, good journey of founder and, and fan of companies to still being a founder and a fan of companies, but now with the uh, additional resources of Techstars to back them with. Yeah, fascinating. Well, and explained in a very humble manner, but you've had a lot of success. For those that don't know, maybe you could just give a quick oversight of what Techstars is and how you describe it in your own words. For sure. Yeah. So effectively, Techstars is the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. And, and what we want to try and do is help people at every stage of, of their journey from kind of inspiration to, to IPO. So at that very earliest stage, we run Startup Weekend and Startup Week and, and lots of free programming. And, and we have a kind of online entrepreneur's toolkit for people who are thinking about starting companies. We run about a thousand Startup Weekend events around the world um, every year. Most of them obviously virtually now, but hopefully over the next while getting back to in-person. And those are, you go, you pitch an idea, you form a team, you build an MVP over, over 48 hours. And probably a quarter of the companies that come together on those Startup Weekends go on to become actual businesses. We then run accelerator programs, about 50 of them now around the world, where we take in 10 to 12 companies at a time. We invest up to $120,000 into each company and we put them through a three-month accelerator program where we connect them with investors and advisors and mentors and founders who've been there and done that and help them squeeze two or three years worth of experience into a three-month process and and then continue to support them as they they grow and scale from there. And then we have a, a VC fund that sits alongside that and does some investing into companies that, that have graduated out of those accelerator programs. So Techstar started back in 2000 six in in boulder that's uh, so been going for 15 years we've invested now in close to 3,000 companies around the world and are increasing uh, that number at about 500 new companies every year at the moment across multiple sectors everywhere from us europe um asia middle east and and, and lots more to come actually over the next little while I, I just noted that you started off in journalism and uh, I wonder whether there's something in, something about journalists and something about the job that appeals to VCs, whether it's a shared skill set, because obviously Kieran at Ascension is also an ex-journal. I wonder if there's shared skills or whether there's and a, the same appeal between VC and journalism. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's quite a few people who've trodden the path from, from journalism to, to VC. I think part of it is to be a good journalist, you have to know how to ask questions and, yeah. and obviously a big part of, of being a VC is asking questions and knowing the right ones to ask. The, the other big part of being a journalist as well is that you have to, one of the advantages I suppose that I have from, particularly from doing radio, is you have to really listen. Like you have to become a very active listener. And I think one of the things that I've learned from doing that is like when people give you answers, they're very frequently telling you like 10x more than what the words that are coming out of their mouth. And sometimes it's the intonation, sometimes it's the, the pauses in phrasing, like it's all of these little things, little subtle nuances that you can sometimes derive some information from. And I think the other thing then is, and journalists don't by any stretch of the imagination have a kind of monopoly on this, but there is a level of kind of intellectual curiosity that I think is, is common to journalists and VCs because even if I look at my own portfolio, I have everything from talking cats that send letters to children to teach them how to read and write to drone operation software for complex environments, right? And, and one of the great joys, as you guys will know from doing this job, is that you go and you meet some incredible deep tech company building something that you 
barely understand and you're like this is incredible like i want to dig in on this a little bit more and so you download a bunch of podcasts you buy a book you read a bunch of articles and blogs you go back and in your next conversation you sound slightly more informed <clears throat> but you're constantly learning and, and and constantly kind of seeing patterns between the challenges that different companies have and, and i think that kind of curiosity and question asking and and, and listening is, is something that kind of being a journalist for whatever it was not very long four or five years it was long enough for me to at least build the foundations of that skill set yeah you have one of the most enviable networks in the business and i guess that's something that's useful for journos as well probably yeah you're always kind of like i I never quite got to like house of cards or whatever the kind of best tv show about journalists ever has been like where i was frantically texting sources or anything like this but you you do have to learn how to cultivate a, a, a wide range of of people that you talk to and i think it's also i think one of the lessons that transcends a whole bunch of different careers, whether it be journalism or VC. But but one lesson that I've always tried to tell other people who are starting out, either as founders or investors, is it's nice to be nice. And it's much easier to have a big network and try and be collaborative um, because it's, it's far easier to do that than it is to have really sharp elbows. One of the reasons I don't know that I would ever make the leap to being a growth stage investor is that like I don't know that I would be good at being in a deal where I have to like literally shank someone to get the ability to write a check into into a company like i'd much rather see if there's ways to build collaboration and 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 coalition um and and that's where that network has come from initially when i started out as an investor i was like i would go to the opening of an envelope if i thought i would meet someone interesting there so i would go and speak at every conference and event and university from the the tiniest little place that no one ever heard of in in eastern europe to bigger ones and you just build a network and, and try as best you can to be nice to people within reason. And uh, from my experience, it comes back 10 times over. Yeah. How important do you think network is in VC? I think VCs overestimate how important it is a lot of the time. Like I, I talk to people a lot and they're like, oh yeah, we have to have this proprietary deal flow. And it's kind of like, if, if you think there's such a thing anymore, like then maybe if you're, if you're Tavid from TransferWise, your proprietary deal flow or all the other people coming out of TransferWise and starting new companies, they'll talk to other people as well. But I think network is, is important because you have to be part of my job is not investing in a company today and just thinking about the next six months like i'm already thinking about their late seed round or their series a or who the people are that they're going to need to talk to japan if they want to expand there or or the us if they want to expand there so like for me to be more useful to my founders which is the you know the best way for me to get into a deal or to get an opportunity to work for a company is to show them that like i can be helpful and, and useful yeah. Having a good network that, that allows me to do that is, is good. But, you know, it's a balancing act. Like I, I remember <clears throat> when I was in New York talking to someone who was like, you need to, his view was you need to have like a super tight, condensed local network. So he was like, I am Mr. New York. And I was kind of like, well, I do London and I have some friends in Dublin and I, I do a lot of stuff in Estonia and I have all of these other, he was like, you have to pick one of those places. Like, well, I, I, I don't really want to world. do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, now I'm I'm never going to be Mr. Uzbekistan or something like this. But like, I think you can have a kind of a relatively dispersed network, but you just then have to be, you have to think a little bit systematically. And that's been really hard this year about how you continually re-engage with that network. That one of the good things about the conference circuit in Europe is that you can go to probably four or five events over the course of a year and meet everyone in your network and have a beer with them and have breakfast and, and have a chat and you've at least created that touch point and then maybe there's you know a couple of zoom calls or a little bit of you know give and take and and, and help along the way but yeah sometimes people obsess with it and they're like oh yeah you have to have the world's greatest network and, and yeah. 
for some people it works for others it's like less is more yeah i think the, the the only place that strikes me as being really useful to have a great network and something that we do a lot of work on episode one is in helping companies raise subsequent rounds so yeah. i don't know i don't know where that effect is most important and most valuable but certainly from seed i look at our portfolio companies we help them identify all the right funds to speak to at the next round make the right introductions to the right partners in those funds and our, my instinct is that optimizes their rounds enormously i wonder if that effect is as great to pre-seed to seed where you guys are operating i think it is i think actually it's it's interesting i think that that dynamic probably decreases in importance as you get if you're going series b to series c yeah like the actual pool that you're fishing in is so small that everyone yeah. already knows everyone else yeah exactly the bit where companies normally fall apart in in my experience is like they pitch a bunch of pre-seed investors but actually they're raising a seed round or mm -hmm. they go and talk to all the seed round investors but then it turns out they're actually only raising like 250k and so i think the the bit that we try to help companies with and help them think about is being very systematic in terms of building out an investor pipeline that says hey these are the people i need to talk to after tech stars, like during or after tech stars. And not only that, I also need to look at who do they co-invest with in the subsequent round of funding so that I know that if I take capital from episode one, then the likelihood is that I'm going to, there, there's a list of 15 funds that, that they co-invest with that I should be thinking about for yeah. my late seed or my series A. And I think because the, the pool is so big now, like you've got, even in, if I look at the last two tech stars London batches, compared to the first five or six that we did, the, the first couple of programs that we ran, like I would say 90% of the capital going into the company's post-program was from UK investors, like mm -hmm. almost exclusively, like a handful of, of, of other European investors and, and, and a few angels from, from elsewhere. If I look at the last two years, we've had probably a third of the companies have been invested like by US institutional, East Coast and West Coast now, institutional investors, probably another third maybe a little bit more are kind of uk slash europe and then we've had a bunch of investors come in from japan middle east like all of these kind of other places so even now if you're a pre-seed uh founder going who do i talk to like the, the the list of possible people to talk to is like probably five times larger this year than it was two years ago and so that's where i think we as very early stage investors hopefully are good guides or at least kind of like the, those little guardrails they put up when you go bowling to, to keep the ball in the right lane rather than letting them because founders will of course go i want to talk to andrew chen and andreessen horowitz it's like yes he might not want to see your clickable figma prototype just yet maybe maybe yeah. think about doing that a little bit further down the line and so one of the challenges is obviously founders fizz off in a thousand different directions at once and, and part of our job as investors is to go get us great, like maintain that energy, but like, please try and direct it in this direction so that you, you get the outcome that you want. Yeah. What is it that the founders find most useful? What is it that you get very passionate about, you know, in terms of textiles offering where you can add value to founders? I think there's a, there's a bunch of things. I think, I think one big part is, is empathy. So, so pretty much everyone who, who does my job or, or, or the equivalent in, in Techstars, we have all been early stage founders before. We've all mm -hmm. gone on pitch VCs. We've all gone through the kind of good, bad and, and, and ugly of running a program. And a lot of our mentors have, have been through that journey as well. And, and I do think sometimes what what founders need as much as they need capital and, and, and team members and growth is, is just the ability to go, am I crazy to think X? The, the answer to which is normally no. Like everyone goes through all of these different phases of, 
of thoughts. So I think empathy is, is a big part of it. I think we're quite hands-on as well in terms of the kind of engagement with companies. So most Techstars programs, it's like 10 or 12 companies. It's very, like there's a lot of one-on-one time between me and the companies during and, and post-program. There's a lot of one-on-one time with the kind of mentors and entrepreneurs and residents that we have. And then I think the other big thing is that like we're, we are genuinely international. Like we, okay, 30, maybe 25 or 30 of the programs that we run are, are in the US kind of across the whole um, country and, and Canada. But then we also have like a, a pretty big, and, and because of the Startup Weekend programs that we run, like we've run Startup Weekends in I think 160 something countries now. So like there is someone from the Techstars network almost everywhere in the world. And, and that I think is, is something that, that founders find really useful that like there's this other network of founders that have been there and done that, that they can talk to. There's this network of mentors that they can tap into in different markets. And I think that's the big thing that they need help with is just like, even if it's just a 15 minute call to go, am I too early to consider entering the Japanese market? And the answer is yes, rather than spending like two weeks researching it. Like that is unbelievable and disproportionately valuable for founders to be able to manage their time. And that's why we talk a lot about like, that three month period should be two years worth of learning crammed into a very short period of time. I was going to ask Eamon, apart from infectious curiosity, which is very clear, what do you think is your biggest motivation in this space? So, so it's a really good question. And a lot of it is, it comes down to frustration, right? And if I look back on the two companies that I started and, and, and or the two that, that worked out, largely the reason I started those companies was I was really annoyed that they didn't already exist. And so I was like, why? Like, I just, it's so frustrated that like no one is making content for mobile. Why are they not doing it? And eventually it was like, wait, why don't you do like look in the mirror? Like you can do content, you can build the apps and you can write code. Like, why don't you do it? It's like, oh, okay, I'll do it. And then with the, the games company, it was like, I'm so frustrated that the kind of internet is very anodyne and boring. Like why doesn't someone build something that's a bit more fun? And so we, we went and did it. And so one of the reasons that I say involved doing VC is that like, I also found it very frustrating building a company because I, frankly, I wasn't very good at it. And, and there wasn't much 2004, 2005 in Ireland, like there, there were no accelerators. There wasn't much of a kind of VC infrastructure. There were a couple of founders and a few other people who were like unbelievably generous with their, their time and advice. And that, that meant a lot. Like that, that probably was the difference between success and failure for me. And so like the, the, the frustration that I felt as a founder is now a frustration that I feel on behalf of other founders. And so I love being able to just spend time with people and talk them down from a ledge or give them an introduction that makes a big difference or kind of go, oh yeah, but just don't do it like that. Like just talk to this person and they'll solve the problem for you. And then getting an email or going, hey, have you thought about this as a A-B test? And one of the joys of doing pre-seed is you say, hey, have you thought about changing this wording on your landing page? And then the company goes and does it and like 20 minutes later, you get an email. They're like, our conversion rate went up 10%. Mm-hmm. Like that's incredible. Like that's, that's a really, being able to make that, that difference is, is what, what does it for me? Like, and, and, and the excitement, the excitement of the first kind of, I don't know, 24, 36 months of a company's life. Like that's the bit that I really thrive, like excitement and chaos and madness and frustration and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's really why I do it. And, and I think the people who, like starting a company is both the best and worst thing that I ever did. Like it's, it's arguably the stupidest decision I ever made and, and the, the, the greatest one. And so the extent to which I can support other people who choose to do that is, is something that I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to do and, and something that I want to try and continue to do for, for as long as I can. It's interesting the, the sort of the, the two parts that we're talking about, one which is like, and I guess the two parts which 
all VCs try and help with. One being helping founders with their psychology, almost acting like a coach for them. And the other part is, okay, well, do you actually have business now? And can you give strategic advice that is helpful and not counterproductive? And, And I guess it's probably okay for investors to sort of specialize in either one. And maybe it's rare to find an investor who, who has both. Yeah, I think if, if I think about where this whole kind of weird, weird and wonderful world of VC is going, you look at all of the stuff that's happening with rolling funds, you look at, you know, Hustle Fund and Rare Breed and Backstage and like lots and lots of others that are that are out there, or kind of personality driven funds like, like Ryan Hoover and, and Weekend and, and others. Um, I think now, historically, there was this kind of idea that like you didn't want to do a party round. You didn't want to have a messy cap table. You didn't want to have too many investors on there. Like if I were starting a company tomorrow, I would go, okay, I'm weak in these areas. And so therefore I want angels who can help me either hire someone to be better in those areas or can be someone to, to bounce ideas off in, in, in those sectors. And so I do think particularly at the early stage, at least for now, and, and, and we'll see it play out in later stages as more capital starts to go towards solo operators or smaller funds or more nimble funds or, or, or more specialist funds. But I think it's really interesting. Like I have friends now who are starting their second or third companies and they have like, you know, their pre-seed round is 15 or 20 people, but it's 15 or 20 people who are like, you can go to them with almost any question and, and you'll get like an incredibly solid answer. And I think it's a challenge for for funds, it's a challenge for accelerators. It's a challenge for a lot of people in an industry that is actually getting, ironically, is getting disrupted. So I, I think that's that's one of the big challenges is that now if you're, particularly if you're a hot deal at pre-seed or seed, if you have a choice of, do I take the fund that gives me a large check and maybe a board member and they have some portfolio services that I can access, but I have a question mark about how valuable those portfolio services are because they're very general, or do I take money from this person who's going to like, help me launch on product hunt and then take a little bit of money from this person who has negotiated all of these partnership deals and take a little bit of money from this person. So I think there's a really interesting shift starting to happen in, in the market. And there is definitely an evolution in, in the way that founders are thinking about capital and, and, and the way I think that a lot of people are thinking about investing. And I think that's really exciting. Like it's the first time in a long time with the exception of like crowdfunding, which everyone thought would be maybe a bigger deal than, it, than it's turned out to be so far. I think this is one of the biggest shifts in the kind of VC and investment landscape in, in a long time with everything from, as I say, rolling funds to SPACs and all of that side of things. Yeah, definitely. I, I've experienced that firsthand recently with a company we've been fundraising for, and it makes sense to have slightly smaller checks from some investors but to free up space within the round for more people who can yeah. tick some of those boxes. And I think with more sort of fundraising tools online adding more people isn't extra work and so therefore you want that increase in distribution and network by having more people involved so you can kind of lower your minimum and things like that to get get people into the round which i think yeah i think it's and it's it's great to see it right like i think for for a, a long time a bunch of companies that maybe would have benefited from having five or six angels on their cap table got into a situation where a fund said hey we're going to take the whole round and what people don't always understand is for a lot of funds, the, the way that they're set up is if, if, if you raise capital from them and you're not growing like crazy 12 months later, you probably don't get the same kind of love and, and attention because they're thinking about like, is this going to be a fund returner or do we now have to put more effort and energy into another company? Whereas if you have an angel investor, well, obviously they have a very different outlook from a, from a returns and, and expectation perspective. So I think there's, there's a lot of stuff that, in fairness, we spend a lot of time working with founders on this during the program to go, look, you need to think about what this 
dynamic is going to look like and, and a lot of time going like do the venture deals course so you at least understand how VC works and, and what the motivations are and what the expectations are because like once you get on that hamster wheel it's it's very hard to get off you can't go oh well we're going to slow from 150% month over month growth to like 20% month over month because I want to take a vacation. It's like, you're going to get fired if you decide to do that in a board meeting. So like companies need to go in with their eyes wide open when they take VC that I, I tell people all the time, like, and it's, it's a mistake that tons of founders still make. Like they just don't do any due diligence on the people they're taking. In fact, I think it's a really negative signal. If I'm thinking about selecting a company for Techstars and I'm not getting emails from portfolio companies going, Hey, this person got in touch with me. They wanted to see what it was like. Was it worth it? You know, because you come and do tech stars, we're asking you for 6% of your company. Like that's quite a lot, right? That's an emotional amount of equity to give away. And so you, you need to be sure that I'm not just some like fast talking Irish guy who's going to be like, oh, hooray, like come join our network. It's amazing. Like we're all going to have sing karaoke and have a great time. Like you need to make sure that that 6% is you're going to, you know, sweat me for it basically and, and sweat the network for it. And I really love seeing founders doing their their due diligence on me, and I love seeing them do their due diligence on on other funds as well because it's it's just it's invaluable and and, and it's a really good signal that they're structured in terms of their thinking. Yeah, there's definitely a sort of slight funding hack there, which is <laughs> get a testimonial from an existing portfolio company. It will feed back to the investor, and you'll get a big load of kudos from the investor for that. Exactly. Um, I think also going back to the having larger cap tables and lower minimum tickets, I think it's quite good timing for the UK, particularly in Europe generally, in that mm -hmm. we've got more unicorns now. So there are many more people in the market who have maybe not necessarily been the founder or the investor that built that company, but have been employee 10 to 100 and been on that journey. And they might do smaller tickets, but they've got real operational value to add and so yeah i think we're gonna see many more two to 10k tickets from people that can add a lot of value from their own network and knowledge and stuff and i think okay. founders are tapping onto that at the moment and if anyone's listening who works at a unicorn i'd encourage them to do more angel investing as well because they yeah uh, definitely do like we're seeing way more of it the good thing as well is that finally and it took like 10 years basically for for Europe to, to catch up but like you had second market and a bunch of other platforms in, in the US where if you were an early employee at Facebook or Twitter you could sell some of your options and, and, and generate some liquidity like we're starting to see a bunch of secondary funds and, and even individuals and family offices now going in and, and buying secondary and, and giving liquidity to those early operators to founders and, and early hires and that's been the cycle in in, in the Bay Area and, and in the US and I think it's 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 long overdue here but it is a amazing now like when I see company cap tables coming into Techstars or even during the program like there's far more people who are coming out of DeepMind or Facebook or Revolut or TransferWise or different places where it's, as you say it's that five or 10k ticket but like unbelievable value add in terms of what they they, they give alongside the the cash. Yeah just drawing drawing more on that point I'd love to talk about the democratization of, of early stage funding because the, ro the rolling funds we've talked about the crowdfunding smaller smaller angel tickets etc i mean it feels like tech stars could be really well placed to to do something there to whether it's allowing smaller check sizes and also with the background of how do you continue to innovate as an accelerator what what what's next what moves the needle and i just wonder whether you you guys have been thinking about sort of the democratization of, of early stage and, and thinking where you guys can play a part there 
Yeah, it's it's definitely a big topic of conversation for us uh, for a bunch of reasons. One is the the nature of our programs where we have 100 mentors meet the 10 companies in in the first month or two of the program. A lot of those mentors probably I know 50 or 60%, maybe even 70 or 80% on some programs. Some of the, those mentors are also angels. And so a lot of them are now coming to us going, hey, is there a way that we can participate more in the companies? Now we see, like historically, companies would come and do Techstars and then they would raise money on demo day. What we've seen the last two or three years is that like half of the companies raise money in the first month of the program. And most of that money comes from aim, from the people, the mentors that they meet or, or friends of, of the mentors. So there's definitely... It like and, and as we think about that more systematically, it's like, well, actually, we have like 6,000 or 8,000 mentors around the world, some of whom might, if you're in New York, you might like exposure to London. If you're in London, you might like exposure to Korea, because, again, we have this international footprint. That's something that's that's quite interesting. Um, so I think there's there's a there's a bunch of stuff. There's also even what, what is it that happens in between, say, a startup weekend and an accelerator? What is it that happens after an accelerator? Like we run these three-month programs, but it's not like companies stop needing help when they, when they grow and scale. So I think there's a, there's a bunch of different types of programming and funding opportunities that we're looking at. We've you know, talked to crowdfunding platforms and other people in the past to see if there's, there's ways of working together there. And I, I think there, there is, to your point, there is very definitely an opportunity for us to evolve and, and iterate and and also I think an opportunity to, there's also a, a, a huge kind of group of companies that I think probably fall just outside the kind of venture backable class of companies if, if, if you want to think about it like that where actually you can invest at a three or five million valuation that company is going to sell for 30 or 50 and you've maybe got a 10 or 15 percent chance of that happening versus like a 0.001 percent chance of for the, the kind of fund returner I think there's a big opportunity for us to work with those types of, of companies as well, right? And, and I think that's, that's one of the areas where this kind of democratization of capital, I think, is really exciting, is that there's this whole section of the economy that's starting to get unlocked by technology, where some companies will be built into whatever unicorns or decacorns, but there will also be a bunch of companies that actually just do really, really well. And whether you get your money back in the form of dividends or, or an exit, like, who knows? But if you're invest, if, if you're in that more angel investor mindset of like, well, I can take a bit of a view on this being a five-year, you know, growth project rather than an eighteen-month one, I think there will be some pretty substantial gains for people with with pockets and patience, basically, yeah. over the next little while. Definitely, because I, I think that people like our listeners would love to stick probably a few hundred quid into companies that have the sort of seal of approval from VCs and accelerate. I don't know if you've heard of the seed stage, which is my my event that again, you know, that and that I think is complementary to Techstars where some of your companies will probably apply and pitch. It's another demo day. And one of the things I'm keen to do with that is to have a sort of cohort fund with tiny minimum minimum tickets and as you say, tech tech enabled. So yeah, and and maybe Techstars should open it up too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it, it's like it it is it's it's a bit like the um it had seen in the train station in the matrix where the train is coming and agent smith is holding it's like that is the crushing sound of inevitability right like all of this stuff is up for grabs over the next five to ten years both here in the uk and, and europe more widely and, and and into the us like i invested in Thunderbeam a couple of years ago because i like i i buy into the whole equity crowdfunding like i think there's a massive opportunity i think there's still huge opportunity i like what they're doing with liquids secondary markets selfishly as an angel investor there have been days where i'm like this is great that we've had this markup like but 
can I can I have can I see some of the benefits of that? So I think there's a bunch of really interesting stuff that is taking longer probably than we thought it would to change. Mm. Like I thought a lot of this stuff would just be like happen, like would have already happened. And and now I'm kind of like, oh well, maybe maybe it's a bit like VR. Like it's gonna take it's gonna take a lot longer than everyone thinks before everyone gets an Oculus Quest. But it will get there. And I think whether yeah. it's Techstars or whether it's Jason Calacanis is doing with the kind of remote demo days in, in the US, what you're doing with the seed stage, you know, what we're starting to what what bigger funds are doing with their scout programs and rolling, mm-hmm. like all of these types of things are really interesting. And I don't know that it's necessarily going to be a zero sum game or or outcome. But I do think that even though we're in the kind of the 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 nervy part of it are we going to have like a massive recession or what's going to happen um i also think there's probably hasn't been a better time to start a company in in the last kind of 10 or 15 years like there's so much capital out there there's so much opportunity like when i think back to what we had to do to do very basic stuff when i was running a company now i'm kind of like geez i could use webflow and had that done in like 10 minutes instead of 10 days so that the opportunity is there and we're seeing a lot more people go all right, well, I'm just going to start something. I'm going to bootstrap it. I'm going to run it as a kind of side hustle. And then if it turns into a thing, great, let's run with it more, more systematically or more structured. But I think it's brilliant. Like, and, and, and that's borne out. Like when I look at, we're, we're in the final stages of selection for the upcoming Techstars program, like the quality, we could have taken 30 companies this year. Like normally I say that about 10 or well, about 15 or 20. Um, but this year, genuinely, like if, if I had an unlimited budget and, a clone to take all of those meetings. The quality was high enough for us to take that number of companies this year and, and it's increasing. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a sort of success breed success, isn't it? And um, we're starting to see that there's still a long way to go in terms of structuring all of that and helping it find the right things at the right time, at the right price and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I've got so many questions. Go <laughs> 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 on and on and on, literally. I wanted to just quickly, before we do our last segment, just ask you about some of the big trends that you're seeing in early stage. What's hot right now for you that maybe the audience aren't aware of? I'm a big believer in probably more of a consumer investor than most. And I don't know that we have seen the kind of direct-to-consumer trend play out as much in Europe as, as we have in the US. And that's partially because going market by market into Europe is like death by a thousand cuts in, in a lot of ways. And it's certainly not helped by the current kind of political situation, border control situation here. But let's assume that gets fixed at some point in, in the next couple of years. Like I think consumer in Europe has a, like there's a big footprint and a, and a big addressable opportunity in a big market. And I think we'll see some consolidation in that space and some really interesting stuff happening there. So, so that's definitely, definitely number one. I think because of everything that happened over the last kind of 14 or 15 months, we're in this kind of new, almost like era of escapism where, you know, whether it be all of the fitness apps that have become pretty popular on, on Oculus right the way through to what Apple fitness and and I see the Peloton in the background there, like everything from fitness escapism to like VR gaming to streaming gaming, et cetera, like anything that takes people out of reading the news and getting depressed and into a kind of flow state of happiness Again, I think there's a massive opportunity. Like we're, we're only scratching the surface of VR gaming, multiplayer of, of AR. As we start getting into kind of glasses that don't look horrendous like Google Glass, there will be a bunch of really interesting uh, companies that are built out in that space and, and everything from kind of actual games to like haptic technology and feedback and, and that side of things. And then the, the other big one that I've, I've been asking for companies for for a long time is like aging populations. We've, we've got 
I, I am part of an aging population. I keep getting older, which is which is one great regret that I have, but like known as building tools. I meet a lot of people building tools for 16 year olds who have no money. I've meet fewer people who are building tools for 65 year olds who have lots. And so I think that there is a huge opportunity for kind of tech savvy kind of 50 plus people. Um, and and I'd, I'd, I'd like to see a lot more in, in, in that space. And we're starting again to, to see little shoots in, in that area. But yeah, those are, those are a couple of areas I'm excited by. Thanks so much, Eamon, for that. Super interesting. And we had, as I think you could tell, about a million more questions that we would have liked to have asked had we the time. But yeah, super interesting to hear your views on the democratization of finance. That's a particular area of interest for me and angel investing, where things are going with regards to that. And also just, I think everyone would agree, it was fascinating hearing where accelerators can go in the future. And we always love talking to entrepreneurs who've turned to investors. And what we like to do at the end of the shows is ask people who, if they had three people um, alive or dead to a dinner party, who would they invite? So so mine are probably less businessy and more just people who I think would be interesting to hang around with. But so I, I like absolutely fell in love with Florence Pugh, the actress during lockdown. So her Instagram stories are incredible. She's a, a very keen and looks like a extremely good cook as well. And I love cooking. I actually know Florence Pugh and she cooked <laughs> me breakfast, genuinely. She cooked me breakfast <laughs> a few weeks ago. So, so I will genuinely report that back to her. She'll be so chuffed. <laughs> she um, she's genuinely it was it was amazing to, to follow that that journey over lockdown because she's you know produced some pretty good pretty good dishes and it's funny that I the last time I had a conversation similar to this was with someone else in, in who's in the UK kind of startup ecosystem where a friend of mine was over from the US and he was like oh we're trying to get Emma Watson to be a spokesperson for the brand and he was like oh sure I went for drinks with her last week she's best friends with my wife it was like uh, <laughs> so so there's obviously the six degrees of separation is, uh, is yeah, reduced yeah. even further here every good dinner party needs someone to sing at the end and I'm a massive Biffy Clyro fan so Simon Neal who's the lead singer of Biffy again I have yet to hear an interview with him where he's been anything less than hilarious and very insightful in terms of, like, I think there's a lot of similarities between the creative process in, in music and the creative process in cooking and what people might view as a slightly less creative process in building a startup. But to my mind, that iterative process that you go through, test, learn, wireframe, prototype, test, repeat, like that's exactly the same as writing a song. You're just writing code instead. But Simon from Biffy, again, like just really interesting guy, good personality and, and interesting perspective on the nature of creativity. He, I listened to a podcast he did a while ago where he talked about as a songwriter, how you constantly have to have your kind of antenna up. And I thought it was really interesting. Like, again, the best founders that I've worked with, the best CEOs in particular that I've worked with, they're, they have that intellectual curiosity, right? They're, con- they're looking at like the onboarding flow of other companies or they're buying a hardware product, even though they're a software company because they want to understand what the unboxing process looks like. So like, I think that kind of idea of being aware, like having taking the blinkers off and having a wider view of, of what's going on in the world is, is, is really important. And then... I would also uh, love to invite Rene Rizepi, who's the head chef at Noma, who is also a music who's built an extremely successful business in, in Noma, which is, again, centered around the importance of creativity, but also, in their case, they have a real sense of kind of fun and a sense of kind of style about what they, they do. And, and to an extent, they remind me a lot of, of that kind of archetypal kind of disruptor in, in terms of the way that they think about the world. I think there's a whole bunch of those Michelin star chefs that, that would be 
in another universe would probably be the founders of like massive tech companies. But as it is, I'm sure they're actually incredibly successful selling 1500 pound dinners. But I think those would be my kind of ideal dinner party guests just because, and again, it's back to the curiosity thing. Like I think I'd learned something from each of them. And also I love dinner parties where I don't talk about the internet all the time because it gets, uh, I talk about that all day. Like if I can talk about music and art and movies and stuff like that, then I think the dinner party would be a little bit more fun. So those are my three. I think it's going to be an amazing dinner party. I might have to slip into that one because it sounds like <laughs> incredible food. And the point about these people making great entrepreneurs in another life, I think is so true. I was watching a documentary about Coldplay and I was watching, a lot of it was focused around Chris Martin. And I was watching him thinking if he walked into episode one's office with, an, with a company, he is like the most investable guy. Yeah. So I think people at the, the top of their one way or another. Even like Coldplay yeah. are a great example. Like, like they're, they've built a brand, right? Like yeah. everything, the aesthetic, the clothing, like the, yeah. the deliberate choices that they made, uh, particularly yeah. from the third album on. It's just, it's, it's really fascinating. And that's, that's exactly yeah. it. I think this, I'm sure people in the music industry wouldn't um, thank me for comparing them to tech founders who they might think are weird. But I suspect yeah. if they sat across a dinner table from one another, they would find that we're far more yeah. alike than we are different. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Eamon. It's been awesome having you on. Thank you very much. And we'll, yes, stay in touch. Thanks for having me. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Eamon. It was an absolute pleasure talking to Eamon. He is incredibly humble, but has had a huge amount of success and is one of the good guys in the tech world. And his network speaks for itself. Seeing as we had Eamon on, we decided to pick a Techstars company for this week's Startup Spotlight. So this week's Startup Spotlight is Anything World. Anything World is a platform that lets game developers develop and search for 3D assets using their voice. They've combined cutting-edge artificial intelligence, natural language understanding, and computer vision to make 3D libraries accessible through voice search. This allows developers to request, see, and manipulate anything they can think of. Anyone that's interested in gaming, esports, VR, or AR should definitely go and check them out. It's anything.world. That's all for Riding Unicorns this week. Catch us next time and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.